past 7 o'clock. Monday night has arrived, and so have we. It's time for Iron Sports 95.9, the true oldies channel. I'm Mike Balsamo here as well. And Ira, another big show on tap for us tonight. First up, Hall of Fame jockey Gary Stevens, and he's been on before. He was on last year when we had the whole controversy with the Kentucky Derby. But we're bringing him back now because last weekend we were supposed to be talking about the Kentucky Derby. (laughs) This week we're supposed to talk about the Kentucky Derby, but they didn't run it on Saturday. But they had this cool thing on NBC, which is all 13 Triple Crown champions raced in a virtual race. I loved it. I was so into it. I'm rooting for Secretariat. Secretariat won. uh, But it was exciting to watch that. And also the Arkansas Derby ran and had Charlatan, which might be one of the lead horses. So we can talk about the Derby's not going to be run until September. So I've Gary, we'll talk about we'll talk about the virtual race. We're going to talk about where the field sets for the Derby, and talk about horse racing in general with him. And then after that, we're going to have uh, Ben Cohen on. He's uh, he's a great interview. We, we taped this one uh, prior to this, so tell us about Ben. Ben is the Wall Street Journal NBA writer, and he started a book called The Hot Hand, which is analyzing, really, Steph Curry, Mm -hmm. and can you be hot? Like, is there such thing a hot hand, like in golf? Are you, if you have uh, birdie after birdie, is that that a hot hand, or are you just playing one hole at a time? (laughs) And this whole analysis, and you would think, well, who cares about the hot hand? Well, there's been... More people studying this topic. I can't believe, like, scientists from Harvard and Stanford all around the world, people when they're looking if there's a hot hand. So it's going to be really interesting, and I love this. I love how he talks about this. And we'll catch up with that at probably about 7.45 here on Ira on Sports. So, Ira, first things first, if there was a Mount Rushmore of Miami sports people, it's going to be Dwayne Wade, Dan Marino, and, of course, Don Shula. And we lost uh, Don Shula today. Yes, um, Don Shula from his from his winning the winningest coach in NFL history, uh, and more importantly, just the class. I mm. mean, th- just the class that he had, um, how he ran the team, uh, being the coach for thirty three years in the NFL, which is just amazing. It's no crazy. scandals, no problems, no whatever. He only had two losing seasons in thirty three mm. years, and he had the one team that was the only undefeated team in the history of the NFL. I mean, you would think in 72, people make fun of them doing the champagne, but the fact is it hasn't been accomplished. <laughs> it hasn't been accomplished yeah, since 1970. So, so there's only been one of, of all of all the years has been an undefeated team in the Super Bowl era. And I think that just the fact that he was just represented with his restaurants and his business interests and, and everything he's done. And you cannot imagine he retired in 1995. And for like 20 some years after that, he's in charity events and working with hospitals. He has just been a fixture in Florida and been one of the classiest people. I have never, I never met him, but I was certainly at Dolphin Games and saw mm-hmm. him. But everyone who I've known who's met him, just the classiest guy. The word that people say is just class. Class personified, the nicest person in the world. And it's just, it's a, tra- it's a, it's a loss to me. He lived till 90 years old. He had a great, fulfilling life. Um, but, uh, you know, I thought it was interesting when I was reading about his history. He went to uh, John Carroll University, and then he was from Ohio. And uh, he went and, and co- then went to the Cleveland Browns, played for a couple of years. And then he was at UVA in his first year at UVA as an assistant was one and nine. (laughs) One win, nine losses. Went to Kentucky, got a job at the Lions in nineteen sixty for three years. And then he uh, he he somehow in nineteen as thirty-three years old, he got a job with the Colts in terms of nineteen sixty three to go on as one of the youngest head coaches. I think Sean McVay 
I think past that, but that was it was the at that time for years he was the longest, the youngest head coach ever in the NFL, and then he was able to stay on, and then he left uh, the Colts in '69. He was in that classic Miami Super Bowl when uh, they lost to as the heavy favorite over Joe Namath, mm-hmm. and then he went in, ni- in 1970. He went to Miami and was there for 25 years, two Super Bowls. Uh, they lost in '84 to the 49ers Super Bowl, '85. They lost to the Pats in the AFC Championship game in 1992. Lost to the Bills in the AFC Championship game, but you know, as I said, he's not just the numbers. It's the impact he had and uh, on South Florida. And, and it's a shame because he really left when he retired from the Dolphins. The Dolphins were probably like the Cowboys, the Steelers. Oh, absolutely. At that level. Yeah. I mean, you could be in, I was in Pennsylvania growing up. People were like Miami Dolphins were that level. And now... Like there have been a joke for so long that it's just it's a shame that they it's it's just a mess. It, and, it's true. I mean, growing up in being born in the early '80s, every kid had Dolphins starter jackets in New York. You know, it just didn't make any sense. But nobody was Jets fans as kids. Everyone wanted to be Dan Marino and just loved the Dolphins. Right. I mean, I think the saddest thing for him in terms of like his career was that he went to Marino with the Super Bowl that one time and wasn't able to get back and mm-hmm. wasn't had didn't have more success. I mean, they had that one that Monday night game when the Bears were undefeated, going for the perfect season. And it was I remember I was in college at that time and everyone gathered at the smallest like 15 inch TV and uh, <laughs> and the uh, and the uh, and the Dolphins were able to, to win with Marino and stop the Bears from having the undefeated season. Uh, that was exciting, but it was like yes, I think the fact that around the country the Dolphins had this had this mystique for so long, and now people, if you ask someone in Pennsylvania about the Dolphins, they're like, "What? I don't care. It's nothing." <laughs> no, you're right. They were definitely yeah. Growing up, it was the 49ers, the Cowboys, and the Dolphins were the three big teams. And 49ers, even when they were kind of down, I still think people think of them as a national brand. I don't think the Dolphins have any of that anymore, unfortunately. Too many years of just losses after losses. Well, you know, we'll see. Let's see if Tua can bring it back and Brian Flores and those things. And and there's a lot when you look at Coach Flores and look at Coach Shula. There's a lot. They're very understated, uh, very professional. It's, it's he has a lot of that Shula in him, and, and hopefully that will come out. But um, it's a shame. I mean, he did leave when he left the Dolphins. He left it as like this iconic, and I just that's the saddest thing is that it really has not been able to reach that. You're listening to Iron Sports. This is the True Oldies Channel. You've got a great show on tap for you tonight. Just a little bit, we're going to have Hall of Fame jockey Gary Stevens on, then also Ben Cohen from the Wall Street Journal. Um, all right, let's do a little sports update here, Ira. What's going on around the uh, leagues? Well, the one thing is the Dolphins announced today um, a plan for 15,000 fans in the state. Like, they're going to release the schedule, and they said there's no uh, European games here. They're playing mm-hmm. London, so no London games, but they haven't showed where the schedule will be. It's, it's usually the biggest time when you figure out, like, where my schedule is. And yeah, of course. How I can match the Steelers games with Penn State games. <laughs> but they're not. But then they came up with this idea, and I was reading about the people who are going to enter at different times. I mean, everybody's throwing out stuff now. I, I just brought it up because they were the first team to say, look, we're going to think about playing for 15,000 fans in the 65,000 season stadium. We'll see what happens. But I mean, the league is still, but the league did make that statement where I had been talking for weeks about this whole idea about being in a bubble. None of the leagues now want to do the bubble. Like they don't, they, they don't want, they don't say what to do with fans, but they don't want to be in a bubble where they have to be in a bubble. The NBA and the NHL said the same thing. So that just throws in the whole Disney World idea and some other things. They, they don't want to be in a bubble where they can't see their families. Um, some small news, you know, we talked last week about how I thought um, the, the Saints bringing in Jameis Winston was such a good idea. You get, get a, 
you know, you you made the argument. Why are people having rookies trusting their franchise to get an established guy as your backup? And I feel like the Cowboys got a steal here with Andy Dalton for three million dollars. <clears throat> Andy Dalton has been the quarterback for Cincinnati for nine years. I mean, I think last year they brought Ryan Finley, and he had no offensive line, no quarterbacks. Mm-hmm. I mean, remember he went a number of years. So I think the Bengals are so terrible. He, as a Steeler fan, look, they had if it, if it they made the playoffs a lot of years. If it wasn't for Vontae's Burfick uh, trying to uh, to uh, kill, kill, kill Antonio Brown, Le'Veon Bell, and Ben Roethlisberger, they probably would have beat the Steelers that one year. I mean, they had they had very good teams, and Dalton is an excellent quarterback. And what he's only thirty years old, so it's like a great. I think it's a great situation for Dalton because he's going to do what Bridgewater did: go in there as a backup quarterback to Dak Prescott, and then be able to step in and and then get another team somewhere else, maybe. But also. This whole thing with Dak Prescott, I kept saying was like, oh, they'll work it out, they'll work it out. He must be wanting $40 million because yeah. we know what the Cowboys have offered. And it's $33, $34 million. He's going to make him the second highest paid quarterback after Mahomes. I don't know. You know, there's a point where, where Dak has got to realize that he's he's just too much money. And I don't care what a great guy he is, but we don't consider Dak Prescott this super elite quarterback no. like Patrick Mahomes. And there's a point where Dallas might say, you know what, I'm going to take my $33 million and spend it in other positions. I have Andy Dalton for $3 million. That's good enough for us. Like, I, if Dak, like they... They've been. They got Ceedee Lamb. They got Michael Gallup. They got Amari Cooper at wide receivers. Ezekiel Elliott running back. Their offensive line is still great. They've imp- upgraded the defensive uh, defensive um, line and linebackers. They're set to go. They're going to have a very good year. And Andy Dalton is a good quarterback. I think this puts pressure on Dak short term and also not technically long term. But the fact is, if they go in, start playing, and, and something happened to Dak, they have a good backup. I mean, they, these teams look. The Steelers showed last year what could happen when you don't have backup quarterbacks. No, absolutely, because the Steelers were a playoff team if they had someone like a, a Ryan Tan- I mean a, a, a Ryan Tannehill from last year imagine he was coming up behind Ben that team makes the playoffs you know you just missed by a game speaking of Dak and you know what's the difference between Dak and Dalton wins wise half a win maybe so it, it's not that crazy to, to think that they could move on from Dak Prescott like you said if he wants 40 million dollars and I can get Andy Dalton for 10 and lose half a win maybe a win a year they're only paying it's not him, that bad they're only paying him three with incentives I think it's six or seven so you're really getting a experienced quarterback who's won 80, 90 games in the league. I mean, mm-hmm. this is if he's young. I mean, Multiple he, playoff appearances. Right. I mean, he's not he's not over the hill. His arm strength is still there. He's smart. And the, he took the discount. He's from TCU. He's from the Dallas-Fort yeah. Worth area. So it's like going home, being with his family, all those things. So there was a lot of factors into that. I think it's a smart move for him. And and he did not go to New England. I mean, everybody kept saying, well, Dalton, they're trying to put everybody in New England, but it looks like Jared Stidham is going to be the quarterback because I do not see Cam Newton going to New England in a million years. No, absolutely not. I don't think that, that they'd want him either, even, you know, even if he did want to go there. I, I, I I'm standing by my uh, theory that they're not in it to win it this year. I think them and the Jaguars are going to be in that uh, Trevor Lawrence sweepstakes. I don't know if you heard this, Ira. I know you're a big uh, cyclist, but Teddy Bridgewater on Saturday posted on social media that he rode from here, West Palm Beach, to Opelika in Miami, 75 miles. So he's staying in shape. That's great. I don't know if he rode back, though. That'd be 150 miles. Because whenever I ride somewhere, I say I rode 50 miles, but it's 25 one and 25 the other. But that's a hard ride because A1A doesn't stay on that road, though. I would be mm-hmm. cool to be riding with him. Like, that'd be fun. How, like, I mean, so many people listening to the show right now could have been in their car yesterday or Saturday and Teddy Bridgewater going cruising <laughs> past them, and you had no idea. I when I saw that happen, I was so cool. And the fact that it started, you know, a minute from our radio station, I just thought that was really cool. Uh, what about UFC? You want to talk about that? Well, they're, in Saturday night, they're going to have the, ja- the fight in Jacksonville. Tony. For, uh, Ferguson versus Justin Gaethje. Um, 
This is going to be a great fight. I mean, Tony Ferguson is 25 and 3. Gaethje's 21 and 2. They're, they're both lightweights. That's what the Conor McGregor with a fight. And uh, Ferguson is, was, was the one, the ultimate fighter. He won one of those competitions yeah. where you had to be and at 26, 27. He's really turned into a tremendous career as one of the top lightweights. He's never fought uh, Khabib and he's never fought Conor McGregor either. But this is going to be one of those fights that uh, I think would cement either one of them uh, in line to go after Khabib. Look, he's, he's had a fight with Khabib five times that's been canceled for yeah. some reason or another. I mean, hmm. you got to think, but it's building it up. And uh, so I think that I'm excited about that. And, and, and Gaethje is known for exciting fights. In 2017, the fight of the year win over Michael Johnson. So I'm, I'm pumped. Look, I like the UFC. I like these fights. I'm ready for that. And Bantamweight Championship is Henry Cejudo versus Dominique Cruz. And Cejudo is both the flyweight and Bantamweight champion. So they actually put a really good card on. It's on pay-per-view. And you get to see Greg Hardy, who played for the Carolina Panthers yeah. <laughs> and was one of the, the all-pros and then he went to the Cowboys for a year. Well, he's a UFC fighter in the heavyweight division. He's not really so accomplished, but he's super strong, super athletic, and they have him going, and, he's, and he'll be on TV. And then there's Jeremy Stevens versus Calvin Catter. But, so it's going to be exciting to see that. Then there's fights. Like, if you don't want to pay for the pay-per-view before it, they have that on ESPN. So you can just watch, like, two hours on ESPN. I think it starts, like, at 7 to 9. Mm-hmm. And then at 9, it goes on to the pay-per-view. Kind of cool that they're doing that, giving you a sneak peek. And it's smart because it gets you interested and gets you to buy that pay-per-view. Right. Uh, NASCAR's coming back. Well, may, well, NASCAR, when you look at it, they have an advantage. All their shops for all the cars are located. Think if all the NFL teams were in one town. They're all in Charlotte. They're mm-hmm. all based in Charlotte or around the Charlotte area. So it's easy for them to be in their shops, and they're going to go to Darlington, South Carolina, and then they're going to Charlotte. And instead of having – usually these red tracks have two races. What they're doing is they're just going to the tracks and then having races in Dar- anywhere they can drive. Like they're going to – so they're going to do Darlington on Sunday, May 17th, and then on May 20th, and then they're going to do Charlotte, a cup race on 24th on Memorial Day weekend, and then on the 27th on a Wednesday, which – Everyone's been saying NASCAR's got to run in the middle of the week in the summer. Like they people say, it's crazy not to run because you're just seeding it to, to baseball. Mm-hmm. I mean, or the other like run in the middle of the week. So that's what they've been pushing. So that's something they've been trying to do for a while. And of course, it's probably the most social distancing of all sports. They don't stay in hotels. They're not flying anymore, and they have to stay in trailers. Everybody's their own trailers. You have the whole infield to go to. Mm-hmm. And remember that not just the drivers who wear suits. Everybody who works in the pits are there because they don't want to catch on fire. Yeah. They're wearing <laughs> flame retardant. I mean, the most toughest suits in the world. So I think that. It's, uh, it'll be exciting to see. Look, there's people who like NASCAR or don't like NASCAR. I liked it when I was little, got away from it, but I'm going to be watching it. It's something there and it's something new to watch and I'm excited and and uh, I went to Vegas. I said, remember two years ago we talked about that. So I'm going to be into it. I'm going to watch USC. I'm going to watch NASCAR. Any, anything's on, I'll watch. I, re- I would watch curling right now. It doesn't <laughs> matter what they've got. Throw it on the TV. I'll tell I'm you what watch. I'm not going to watch. The South Korean baseball is starting. Oh, come on, Ira. No. They're playing on ESPN <laughs> and it's at one in the morning. And I'll tell you what, I'll get up one in the morning for the Australian Open. I'll be watching that. I'm not watching South Korean baseball at one in the morning on ESPN. That's- I was a big Chen Ming Wong fan back when he was uh, healthy and with the Yankees. So I would get into a little bit of, of the uh, South Korean league. Um, any other updates? Uh, there's a weird thing. There's a tennis tournament in West Palm Beach, which they, they came up. I saw that online. I'm like, this is insane. Uh, Bertini from Italy is number eight in the world. Riley Apeka, who just won Delray, 39th in the world. Tennis Sandgren and Tommy Paul, some Americans are in it. It's going to be in West Palm. I don't know where. It's, they said it's at a private club. It's going to be strange. on TV, and it's coming up May 8th, 10th. So I don't know where it's going to be. I wish I could tell you. I think you. maybe I, Ibis or something like I that. Don't I don't know mean, where. I mean, it sounds Ballon like, Isles? but it's right in West Palm. We haven't had a tennis tournament like that. It's not a tournament. It's sort of like an exhibition matches, but that's coming up. We've heard nothing about the Tiger Phil match in golf. Um, so that, now I just saw where Rory McIlroy and Justin Johnson are going to be doing something. That might be coming up soon. And uh, the, remember, June 11th through the 14th, 
that's the Charles Schwab. That's the in Texas in Fort Worth. That's going to be the first golf tournament on June 11th through 14th without fans. They're still talking about that being. So that's sort of the update going for. So you got UFC coming up this weekend. You got NASCAR coming up the following. And if you want to stay up late to watch South Korean baseball at <laughs> one in the morning. I don't know if you saw this. Um, yesterday, Ricky Fowler and Justin Thomas posted a match on social media playing with all persimmon clubs. So they busted out the old school clubs, and I guess I think they were at the medalist in Jupiter or Bears Club, but they showed them to play in a little match play with, with the old school clubs. You know, I didn't ask Ken Kennerly this question. I saw someone who someone proposed this idea talking about is that to for about the problem with golf with distancing mm-hmm. and how the balls fly so much instead of changing the balls or whatever, saying no tees. Nick Faldo, I think. So yeah, no tees. That was very interesting. I hadn't heard that talked about because again, you, you're nervous about these courses because people are out hitting them and they do things. But look, we see if you design the course the right way, then it makes it you can sort of play around with what you have so as long as you put the water and where you have to land and you can have a short course and people are still going to shoot 100 (laughs) (laughs) as an amateur i got to tell you i'd be really scared playing without a tee my driver real fast but i don't think that rule really applies to me um okay iris so you've been really caught up in this and what perfect timing for for an epic mini series then during a quarantine and that's what we have now um with michael jordan we'll talk about that in just a second but i think we've got a little bit of time here if you want to squeeze in what's going on with the nba and the one and done this is huge and two things that has come up one is the nca is going to start allowing names name image and likeness it's called nil if you see the words nil it means that means that players are going to be able to cut their own it's just they just passed it, which they've been fighting in court forever. You saw California and all the states passed this rule. Now it's sort of like the NCAA baby steps two years from now. You can actually get paid to be uh, on the Internet. Say you're an Internet star. You can sell ads on the Internet. You can sign. Like right now, if you sign charity auction uh, papers, you could lose a game. I mean, oh, you yeah. saw where Chase Young got suspended because someone gave him money for his girlfriend to fly to a, mm-hmm. a football game of $300. Now they'll be able to do all those things. They'll be able to actually go and make money, sell their likeness on jerseys, sign autographs, that thing. Now, one of the things that's going to come is that you really care about the Alabama offensive linemen, but they'll say, come to Alabama, we'll set you up with all these autograph signings for $100,000. So from the recruiting side, from the transfer portal side, that's where I think these players are going to get some money. And then I also do think that with the internet and social media, you won't realize how many of these high school guys, even the offensive linemen, have a lot of people on social media that you know, Zion had more social media than almost everybody in the NBA when he was like 11th grader. Mm-hmm. So the point Crazy. is that they'll be able to monetize that and work with that. And and, and even in the other sports, it's going to, but I think it makes the idea of like, like when these players are getting money under the table, it's just how are you going to enforce it? I mean, how are you because you're going to say to a to someone who's providing a service like, oh, you didn't you overpaid for that service like that guy didn't deserve it. Well, uh, John Wall is still getting paid like 20 million dollars for endorse shoes. I mean, yeah. you're going to say criticize. I mean, the fact is that people are endorsing things. You might think that's crazy to endorse. I mean, Blake Griffin on the Kia car commercials and stuff like so the point is that it's but that's interesting. But that dovetails in the fact that the NBA with this whole G League and the, they call it the pathway program and that's starting out I mean we know that LeBron Kobe Kevin Garnett they were they never went to high, they never went to college and it all started with Daryl Dawkins in 1975 Bill Willoughby um, they were drafted and then Moses Malone 74 75 uh, based upon a 71 Supreme Court case and for 14 years 
nobody was drafted. None of the high school kids were drafted. And then suddenly Sean Kemp was drafted, then uh, Kevin Garnett, then Kobe and Jermaine O'Neal. But back in 2005, they said the league was like, these older players were like, I don't want these high school players like Kawane Brown Mm -hmm. getting drafted and taking positions with when I'm in the league. So they were against it. And then the league's like, we don't want to recruit high school kids anymore. I don't want to go to high school gyms and and do that. So then they came up with the idea of the one and done, where it's like, make them go to college. We'll see it. But then the players started going to Europe and playing and then playing in Australia. And now it's come. But there, but right now there's this whole debate whether they should have uh, um, in terms of eliminating the one or done. But the collective bargaining agreement's not up for a couple of years. And the league, it's between like the agents. The agents are saying we have the. Uh, medical reports from the high schools, but we don't want to give it to the to the teams. The teams are like, well, we how are we going to draft these high school mm-hmm. players if we can't see medical reports? And really, I honestly believe it comes from the players. I think the players are really nervous about having these high school kids coming in. As much as they want to say, oh, look, we're all for players, they don't want the high school kids. Of course not. If you're 33 years old and you're a veteran on a team and you're just hanging on there, you don't want a high school kid coming in and taking your position because those are positions that would come. So what the league has done, instead of the G League that pays 35000 they started this pathway program where they're starting to pay players and now you're starting to see um, some of the now four players that decided we're going to go to college like UCLA have decided to go and some of them are going to make 300,000 250,000 100,000 it depends on how good you are really and you don't even play in the G League you're going to be on this like team that plays G League teams, plays other NBA teams. It's going to be a whole way. And you're going to be able to get endorsements and mm-hmm. other things. But it's a way to keep players here. And I think that's, in the end, it's going to hurt college basketball. You're going to start oh, to yeah. see these more and more players are like, you know what? I'm going to go and play in the pros. And then people can see that I'm making, and I think you're going to see a lot of these players. I think it's not going to be just four or five. I think it'll be 15 to 20 uh, players that go into this, quote, pathway team. It, I guess the the opposite side of that is maybe it makes the competition a little better in the NCAA, getting rid of a lot of these kids that are going to be one and dones, you know, in that sense that the superstars are not just going to be popping in and out of the league. They won't be there. And then a bunch of kids that probably aren't getting drafted will be playing. So it, I, I feel like it's a double-edged sword here. I, I don't know what I would prefer. I mean, I know if I was an athlete, I'd want to be getting paid, but, uh, you know, I don't, I don't know what the effect will be. No, I think, it, and you got Jalen Green who's getting paid 500000 Isaiah Todd 250 and every year, every day you're going to hear another one. They might have their own team and like they'll, they'll probably play like an exhibition some NBA, but they'll be ready. They're going to get, um, they can actually go to college too. They're allowed to take college courses. There's a lot of things you can do. And it's that instead of going and pretending you're a college kid, you're, give, you're now actually going to be playing in this pathway program. It, it's uh, it's really interesting. And I'm glad to see that they're at least doing something. And I hate the NCAA. So anything that kind of <laughs> puts them down uh, makes me a little bit happier. Anything else with this? Um, no, but it just shows you with the name, image, and likeness. The NCAA realized that. So, they're, uh, so you're seeing this whole changes. When we come out of the COVID shutdown situation in a year, to. A lot of things are going to change with college sports and especially what happens if, if we don't play college football this year. So it's more than anything. This college sports is really up and they're going to start cutting programs and, and things. It'll be real interesting when this all shakes out what's going to happen. You're listening to Iron Sports on the True Oldies channel. I'm Mike Balsamo. Just about seven, eight minutes until we have uh, Hall of Fame jockey Gary Stevens join us. But let's talk about uh, Jordan's last dance. I, I know that for the past couple of uh, weekends you've been glued to this. Oh, I love it. And I love it because so they, you lived it. <laughs> they, I lived it. And they, they, the criticism was that supposedly Michael Jordan, first of all, they taped everything. So they were taping Michael Jordan doing for this, for like his whole career. It seemed like more cameras than you could imagine. And then especially that final year that he had when they, his final year, 97, 98. But um, 
the the insight and then they they did the interviews and they've interviewed like 200 people but then the fact that michael jordan the thing about michael jordan is that he never he talked a lot when he was a player but he sort of shut down after became this stupid superstar he didn't go into media he wasn't talking you don't ever see him do interviews at all he doesn't talk Mm -hmm. and then he's now every sunday i get an hour of him talking and it's his insight and it's so great to really understand and he's really open and honest about everything I just love it, and I think it's great. And someone said, well, he only agreed to do this because he wants to have the last word, or he wants to see what everybody else has to say, and he said it. And they're like, and it's Ken Burns came out and said, oh, that's not being a good document to be a good documentary when you're a producer. You shouldn't give someone the last word. Well, I mean, you know, you want to give the guy yeah, the course. right. Like, it, I, I, I don't care what Ken Burns says. I want to hear what Michael Jordan has to say. <laughs> and that's what makes it so great. And that's what I love about this. And it wouldn't be this good if you just did a documentary. The fact that Jordan comes in and says, this is what I think about all those things. So that's what I, I love about this uh, this whole thing. There's two more or three more, uh, like two, three, two more episodes, two more episodes. Anything else on the uh, last dance? Oh, yeah. Well, the fact is, is that the dream team. So this last wing was a whole dream team. And this big thing, if you've been following, is all about Isaiah Thomas not being on the team. And the rumor had always been that Jordan said, I won't play if Isaiah doesn't play. And they've had Rod Thorne on. They had other people talk about it and say, no, we didn't. We didn't ever ask Michael. Michael didn't say that. And Michael went on yesterday and said, look, I didn't say no Isaiah. But just so you know. Magic didn't want him. Uh, Larry didn't want him. Uh, Scotty Pippen didn't. Nobody wanted Isaiah Thomas for all their different reasons on the team. And then they started talking. I never knew this. But then they started asking Magic. And Magic goes, I had nothing to do with Isaiah Thomas not being on the team. But you know that nobody else, Michael didn't want him, Scotty didn't. (laughs) So clearly they keep saying that the whole plan is nobody really said we didn't want him on the team, but nobody wanted him on the team. Like we had a great camaraderie. Our team was great. It was this and that. And the team was amazing. David Robinson, Patrick Ewing, Chris Mullen, uh, Carl Malone, Charles Barkley, Scotty Pippen. Jordan Bird, Magic, and Stockton. And really, Clyde Drexler got on that team, who was one of the top two or three players in the league at that time, over Isaiah. So it's not like Isaiah, and people said, well, Isaiah should have been over Stockton, but Isaiah had hurt his wrist two years before. He was a fading player. Like, from a, from a they didn't really need any more players, but I mm-hmm. felt like that. And then also, Joe Dumars, if, if Stockton was going to play, the rumor was that Joe Dumars was going to come, his teammate at Detroit, over Isaiah. And remember, James Worthy didn't make the team, Reggie Miller didn't take the team, Dominique Wilkins didn't make the team, and the only thing I would criticize, they had Christian Leitner on the team instead of Jim. They could add Shaquille O'Neal. Yeah. But Christian Leitner was so accomplished, won the two national championships for Duke. So he got over uh, Chris, uh, Shaquille O'Neal. They showed the Monte Carlo practice. The first time I've ever saw that where they were, it was a, it was a scrimmage and uh, it was a scrimmage game and it was crazy. And they went and it's like they were, the, Magic Johnson's team was beating Michael Jordan's team. And Magic starts riding Michael Jordan like, you know, your team, you're not going to be that good. Are you really Air Jordan? And then he just <laughs> turned it on and they said that's when Michael took over the league that's when we realized he was the alpha of the alpha males that he was better than everyone else and they talk about this about the shoe deal with Nike we're talking about the name image and likeness when he came out after North Carolina Converse he went to Converse and they were going to pay him like $200,000 mm-hmm. like or $100,000 but they said you're behind Larry you're behind uh, uh, Magic mm-hmm. he's like I don't want to be like whatever and Nike came and said we're going to make you all this money we're going to pay you and they were I'm just paying like 300000 which was crazy at the time he wanted to have Adidas but Adidas goes we're under transition we can't we can't sign you I mean what a <laughs> stupid move we're under transition so then he signed with Nike and, and the rest and he didn't even go there his mom was on there saying I begged him to go to, to Oregon I begged him to go there he mm-hmm. went out there and the rest is history and they thought they would sell 
$3 million in shoes in four years. In the first year, they sold over $100 million in shoes. And then they went through and showed the finals wins over Portland, and they showed the finals wins over Phoenix. That's sort of second and third. And uh, people don't realize how good these teams, I mean, they, uh, the, the Phoenix team had, was the, had the best record in the NBA. They had Charles Barkley, they had Kevin Johnson, they had Dan Marley. And I mean, everyone said, well, Jordan didn't beat anybody in the finals. Phoenix was a great yeah, that was a team. Good team. Barkley was the MVP of the league, and uh, they and and they and, and they and it was two two, and they were able. To, they were up three one. Phoenix won Game Five in Chicago, and then they had to win Game Six, like they did for the in the in the Jazz series. They win Game Six in Utah, and then in the uh, in the Portland series, it was two. Portland had Clyde Drexler, Terry Porter, Jerome Kersey, Kevin Duckworth. That's the series when you see about Jordan when he made all the threes at the beginning, and he puts his hands like the mm-hmm. Magic Johnson, like look, I made all the. He, <laughs> you showed in that when when Matt, when Michael Jordan was talking. I was like, anybody I think should just, you can, this is on ESPN, you should just watch these things. They're amazing. But he said, he was upset that Drexler, people said, it's me, it's Drexler and Jordan. It's Drexler and Jordan. He goes, I wanted to show him. Like, he always was just so competitive. And I love that. Ad. It was just great to watch that. We uh, we do have to um, pick up on this next week, Ira, because we've got Gary Stevens coming on right now. So let's get to Gary Stevens here on Ira on Sports. Thanks a lot. We have Gary Stevens, Hall of Fame jockey, uh, a three-time winner of the Kentucky Derby, three-time winner of the Preakness, three times in the Belmont, an 11-time Breeder' Cup win. Uh, thanks a lot, Gary, for coming on Iron Sports. Uh, it's my pleasure. Always good to be across the, the country and uh, on the airways at this time <laughs> and uh, during this pandemic. Well, we're broadcasting, of course, from West Palm Beach, so we appreciate you coming on. Um, and... Uh, but uh, the reason, I mean, this should have been like last year we had you had uh, the same weekend, the same week, Monday, we had you on talking about the whole controversy with the Kentucky Derby this year. No controversy. Of course, the Derby's not being run, did not did not run and is going to be run in September. But uh, so we'll just give your, you know, just your feelings about the whole horse racing season and everything's been pushed around. Uh, just your commentary about everything. Well, I mean, it's changed the whole picture with the Derby running in September, and and thank goodness uh, for Oakland Park and and having the um, wherewithal to be able to split the Arkansas Derby on the first Saturday in May. It was a celebration for myself, it, uh, just for the fact that you know it was Derby Day, and and there was uh, not one but two Derbies uh, running, and we saw a couple of uh, superstars, I think, in the making, if not already superstars, but. Uh, there's a lot of time between now and September. Yeah, I mean, I I was excited for the Arkansas Derby and this horse. You hadn't seen Charlatan had run two races, and but people kept talking about how fast the the horse was. And then just wire to wire at the Arkansas for that first race. Uh, what do you know about Charlatan? And what you know, you had to be impressed by that performance. I, I was impressed with Charlatan before he ever ran. He's one of those horses uh, with a presence that just watching him canter in the morning. Uh, there's something about him, and and when he would walk by Clocker's Corner at Santa Anita, he was one of those that you know you may be in mid conversation with somebody just uh, shooting the bull a little bit, and and uh, you look up and see this big magnificent colt. Uh, even though Baffert says he's smaller than Justify, he's comparing him to Justify, which is pretty good in itself. But he's one of those that you just do a double take and go, who's that? And um, you know, he answered it in the afternoon, his first race, uh, winning by 10 and, and three-quarter lengths, and then coming back, you know, stretching out two turns and, and a, a short field. Uh, but, and who knows what was behind him, but he did it the, the right way, winning by six and a quarter lengths again. So um, there were a lot of high expectations, a lot of hype going in, a lot of pressure 
on, on the camp, uh, but he answered the call and he answered it in the right way. And then in the second race at Arkansas, uh, Nadal, I'm a, I'm a huge tennis fan, Gary, so I, I'm drawn to the name, but the fact that Nadal was able to win that second and that was for another Baffert entry. Well, he's named right. I'll tell you that I'm a huge tennis fan as well and a huge uh, uh, Nadal fan, uh, not only on the tennis court, but on the racetrack. And uh, I, I thought his uh, performance, just because of the circumstances and the depth of the, the field, was was a bit better than than Charlottetown, but Charlottetown wasn't wasn't tested in his race whatsoever. So we don't know what's in the tank with him. But Nadal is he's answered every question. Uh, he loves the battle, uh, and and he's tough, tough to de- defeat in a game set match. You know he he hands <laughs> it to him. That's great. And then certainly we're down here and I watched the Florida Derby. I mean, it was on, of course, there was no fans at, at the Florida Derby. I love going to Gulfstream uh, for a, it's a it's a great track and there's a lot of restaurants and everything in the, in the normal before the shutdown days. But uh, Tis the Law had a good win in the Florida Derby and is going to be one of the favorites for the for the Kentucky Derby. Yeah, I mean, I'm reading the uh, the dailies, uh, the racing dailies uh, yesterday and today and I was, you know, I was, I was covering the races obviously on Fox and, and, uh, I witnessed it. So I didn't need to read a lot, but it, it, all of the hype is on the three Bafferts. Don't forget about Authentic. Uh, he'll be running, uh, June, June 6th and the Santa Anita Derby has been rescheduled and he may be the best of Bafferts bunch, but everybody is overlooking Tis the Law. And Tis the Law is, uh, he, he's a specimen, man, and, and he's a good horse and, Barkley Tag, he's been through uh, with Funny Side the Triple Crown before. He knows how to prepare a horse for a specific date, working backwards from that date to uh, today. And um, we don't know what races are going to be scheduled uh, with points. He's got enough points already to get in the Kentucky Derby, but uh, it'll be interesting to see how Barkley Tag handles him. And and people better not uh, just be looking at the Bafford horses. Uh, you know, and we're five months away right now, and, and uh, things are going to go south with some horses, and there's some horses that may not have been prepared for uh, May 2nd uh, that will be prepared for that first Saturday in September. You you raise a great point. I mean, some of the courses that we think about, like even Seabiscuit wasn't ready, didn't run the Triple Crown um, races because it wasn't ready to run. So many of these great horses that go on to later careers, they didn't run because they weren't, they just weren't ready for May, but then they were they had these careers. So maybe some horse that will come out undeveloped because of the extra four months now between the Derby and the, where the Derby was supposed to be and where the Derby is now. Yeah, right. I, I mean, I mentioned it the other day in our coverage that um, you know, in September... That's usually at that time of year. Um, that's when the the three year olds start testing the waters of, of older horses. They're mature enough for it, um, and if they're good enough, they're going to defeat their more experienced uh, elders that may not have the ability of the three year old that has improved uh, from the first Saturday in May until the first Saturday in September. So the whole picture. In my mind, we got to keep an open mind and, and keep an eye on everybody who's qualifying, who's improving with time. I mean, Baffert may have something over there that's never even started yet <laughs> that we haven't seen that may qualify uh, for the Derby. 
<laughs> well, that's exciting. And then I I did love what they had on NBC uh, with the simulated derby. I mean, it was pretty. It was corny. I agree. Thirteen horses, all Triple Crown winners. But it was interesting to see how it played out. And I got to. It made me study some of these great horses that you didn't really think about in the past. And actually, when they raced against each other. So I know Secretariat won. Citation was second. Seattle Slough was third. Affirmed fourth. American Pharaoh fifth. Did you get a chance to watch that? And and uh, what did you feel about the the results? How they had the virtual derby of the of the top triple crown winners no I, I i'll be honest with you i was covering uh i was covering the arkansas races at the same time that the nbc telecast was going on i was on uh, fox sports one and did a four-hour shift so i didn't <laughs> i still haven't got a chance but somebody tweeted uh uh me the results during uh during our telecast i've always got my phone available and, and ready during commercial break and and I saw the results, and I wasn't surprised at all that the, the big red monster uh, got the job done. You know, I was surprised that I, what I you know, secretary was one, and then Citation. I was reading into that. People of all the older, quote, older horses. People thought Citation, run by Eddie Arcaro, the jockey, was was this elite horse better than all the other ones that when, when they won the Triple Crown in the 30s and 40s uh, in terms of finishing second. But I didn't realize that Seattle Slough and Affirmed ran a race against each other in 78 after Affirmed won the, won the, uh, they won the Marble Cup. And I watched it today before I knew we were having one. I couldn't believe Slough. And it was a great race. I mean, Seattle Slough held off Affirmed and, and won in Belmont the Marble Cup. Yeah, I mean, there were so many great horses and, and still great horses, but you know, things were different back back in the day, and to compare uh, horses of today to horses in the past, I, I think it, you know, our, our uh, breeding program has changed uh, a lot more. The horses maybe aren't as sickery as they were back in the day, uh, but that can't really be proven because uh, with the value of these stallions, I mean, going back to the syndication of uh, Secretariat, uh, they become so valuable uh, that they their their careers are cut short because of their value in the stallion barn, and, and they can't afford really to pay the insurance, on, uh, the mortality insurance on a horse of that value. So they're retired earlier than than they were back in the day because of that stallion value. So it, it's it's tough to decipher. Uh, I think the virtual race was was great. Um, I know there were algorithms uh, that were involved. I'm not a math genius, so. I'll leave that to Jonathan <laughs> Kitchen and, and some of the professional uh, gamblers out there. But uh, it, it was it was fun. My wife uh, she watched uh, moments of of the telecast. She enjoyed it, and everybody I've talked to, uh, you know, they got to celebrate the the Derby in a different way. And I think they were flipping channels back and forth, watching live racing and and watching the uh, simulated race. So pretty cool. We're talking Gary Stevens, Hall of Fame jockey, three-time Derby winner, Preakness winner, and three-time Belmont winner. Um, I, I went, went back. To, I also went back in 2015. You know, when we're talking about American Pharaoh, which finished fifth in the race in the in the simulated race, but you know, considered a, a better horse than Justified by a lot of people. But that Derby that he ran against Firing Line, where you were riding Fire Firing Line, what a race that was! I mean, I remember the race, and you sort of think about American Pharaoh and from the Belmont. But man, you you were you had that was neck and neck almost the entire race. Yeah, I, I'll be honest with you. I, I don't know if uh, if American Pharaoh fired his best shot that day. Uh, to be honest with you, because what he went on and did, winning the Triple Crown, coming back and winning the Breeders' Cup Classic, the way he did at Keeneland. He was a very special horse, and 
all I can say is Firing Line was a very special horse. And had he had I been able to get him to, to switch leads through the stretch, he was running on his left lead all the way through the stretch. And, and he was tiring. He was laboring. And for whatever reason, he, he wouldn't switch. I tried him twice. And, and then I just left him alone. And I said, uh, you know, I, I had that feeling uh, at the quarter pole. I, I, heard, uh, I heard Victor Espinosa urging him verbally. And, and I heard a couple of pops of the whip on, on uh, American Pharaoh's shoulder just inside of the three-eighths pole, and I said, I got him. I knew I had Dortmund any time I wanted him. He was my target. He carried me into the stretch, and I said, let the battle begin. <laughs> and uh, I thought I was going to win my fourth uh, fourth derby off of, uh, you know, being off for nine months with a knee replacement and stuff and, and uh, uh, coming off of that, that, uh, that hiatus, it was it was pretty cool to at least have that feeling um, for about uh, 25 seconds through the stretch. And when American Pharaoh finally got in front of me, uh, firing line, he was fighting back gallantly, but uh, just wasn't meant to be. And then also, I mean, now people are stuck at their home and they're watching movies. And it seems like every time I turn on on demand, like Seabiscuit comes up and you actually were the you played jockey George Wolf in Seabiscuit. So you're a, a famous actor, too, besides being a, being one of the greatest jockeys of all time. And to talk a little about <laughs> playing being in that, because I think I, I mean, it's amazing how many people I'm talking to about horse racing. Like, oh, yeah, just watch Seabiscuit. Like, I mean, like everybody's been watching Seabiscuit. So the movies it was back in 2003, but it still came back now and people are watching it. Yeah, it's a, it's a movie for the ages, and we, we could kind of feel that uh, when we were watching the dailies uh, filming it, and I was new to it. Uh, I loved it, um, and the best part about it, I met my wife uh, the first day of shooting. Uh, she was a production assistant and actually uh, took me at 5.30 in the morning. Uh, we were at um, the old Pomona Fairplex Park, uh, was playing Aqua Caliente, and it was my first big day of shooting. We were doing the... the where I drive up in the car and I walk into the jocks room and, and everything. Anyway, it was uh, 4.30 or 5.30 in the morning. I had no idea. I'd never been on a, on a set before. And, and this beautiful girl came up to me and she said, you look lost. Um, are you talent or are you uh, an extra? And I said, no, I'm talent. And <laughs> she said, who are you? Who, who's your character? And I said, George Wolf. She said, you're doing makeup in 15 minutes. I'll show you to your trailer and then uh, makeup. And, uh, we wound up getting married four years later, and we have a beautiful uh, 11-year-old daughter, soon to be 12. Uh, she was she was born uh, on June 4th, uh, the day after the Kentucky Dur- or after the Belmont Stakes. So she's a Belmont baby. <laughs> oh my gosh, that's just an amazing. Uh, that's a great story. Um, you know, I wore the, the story about Seabiscuit was that War Admiral won the Triple Crown that year, and then and then they uh, and then they actually had a match race, I guess, between uh, that's what you saw in the movie between War Admiral and Seabiscuit. But uh, that's a it's just that was such a great movie, and, and I just can't believe how you were watching it, and you had such an active role in it. And but you haven't done any acting since then, or have you done been anything else since since Seabiscuit? Oh yes, I, I've done uh, several several things since then. Uh, uh, the biggest being, which was a bigger role than, than uh, George Wolf and Seabiscuit, I played Ronnie Jenkins in the HBO special uh, Luck with uh, Dustin Hoffman, Nick Nolte, uh, some of the greatest. And, and unfortunately, we were canceled after the first year because of a couple of horses and the animal rights people coming in and getting us shut down. But um, we had already filmed uh, 
three episodes of the second season and and it was if you haven't if you haven't watched it uh get on your netflix or whatever and check out luck you'll you'll appreciate it you'll like it and and my character ronnie jenkins it'll tell you a lot about my comeback uh after filming when i was retired and doing uh television analysts uh for nbc and also uh hrtv at the time um i i stopped doing that to be a full-time actor for over a year and when they canceled this, uh, my character kind of came into play, and and I figured I needed to get get my life straightened out and, and get back to race riding. So uh, there's there's a story behind the story. Gary, I really appreciate you coming on Iron Sports. Um, you, this is I know there's this is just tremendous to have you on. The story about Kentucky Derby is great, and your analysis of of the Derby field. So I'd love to have you come on again. You know, maybe in the fall when we start. To, it's weird to say when we race the Kentucky Derby in September, mm-hmm. but uh, would love to have you back on another time. And thank you again for coming on Iron Sports. Great stuff from Gary Stevens. Let's talk to Ben Cohen now from the Wall Street Journal. Hi, this is Ira from Iron Sports. We're talking to the Wall Street Journal. NBA reporter, but author of the book called The Hot Hand, Ben Cohn. Ben, thanks for coming on. Thanks for coming on Iron Sports. Thank you for having me. So, Ben, um, about three weeks ago, when people were playing golf, this is the fourth Honda Classic. My cousin uh, Bruce, who's probably like a ninety shooter in golf, was texting me playing the Honda Classic, the Champions Course, and the first nine holes. I'm mean, every like I guess thirty minutes, twenty minutes, I'm getting an update that he parted birdied it, hit another great shot, and he ended up having a 38 through the front nine. Would you say that he had the hot hand then, or was that was, was that wrong? <laughs> I would say that maybe your cousin was lying about his score, first of all. But, uh, no, I think that's a classic example of the hot hand. The hot hand is this psychological phenomenon that has always been studied through basketball. But the reason why it's been studied through basketball is that it applies far beyond basketball. I mean, it applies to everyday life and how we make decisions and human behavior, but it also applies to golf. And I think that many of us who have ever golfed um, have been fortunate enough to have those days when the pin looks huge, right? And and the hole when you're putting looks like a helipad and like you know that you are playing well and you are going to play well. And I think that's, you know, that one of the questions at the heart of this book that I wrote is like, is that phenomenon real? Should we trust what we see and feel, or should we behave differently? And then you center it on Steph Curry, and that's a good person to center it because there could be no one hotter sometimes uh, when he's hot, but he's usually always hot. But And you talked about that game in the Knicks when he was at, before he played at Master Square Garden, I think in his third year, he was averaging 18 points a game, taking five threes a game. But in one game at Master Square Garden, he scored 54. And then after that, he's now a 27-point game shooter, MVP of the league. And that just turned it all on in terms of, of what the hot hand. So you were, you were very interested in Steph Curry and the whole idea of using him as a basis for is there a hot hand or not? Yeah, when I wanted to explore this idea of the hot hand in basketball, I figured like who better to personify it than the greatest shooter in the history of the planet? And it turns out that Steph Curry, when you ask him what is the hottest you have ever been, he points to this one game against the New York Knicks in Madison Square Garden in 2013. Um, as you said, he scored 54 points, he made 11 of his 13 three-pointers, This was kind of the game that was an epiphany for everybody involved. It was a game that changed his life. It was a game that changed the fate of the Golden State Warriors and really the future of the NBA. Now, you gave some of those stats. I think we all know he's won two MVPs since then. The Golden State Warriors have won three of the last 
five championships. Uh, but what I really wanted to know when I was talking to Steph about this magical game was, does he know when he is going to get hot? I think we, we, we're all familiar with this feeling, this universal phenomenon of the hot hand. And I think one of the curious things about it is that we never really seem to know how we are going to get hot, right? If we, if we did, if we could know that, we would try to optimize for those situations. So when Steph Curry and I were talking about this game against the Garden when he just couldn't miss, I said to him, like, do, do you know when you are going to get hot? And what he says is that he doesn't know when it's going to happen or why or how or where it's going to happen. But once it does happen, you have to embrace it. And this game happens to be just the perfect example of that. The, the Warriors had gotten into a fight the night before. Steph Curry missed the bus that he usually takes uh, going to road games. He ended up taking another bus, and that bus got pulled over on the way to Madison Square Garden. He woke up that morning with a, a $35,000 fine, and yet, like, still, this was the game when everything broke his way. So it's a, it's a really nice reminder that once it does happen, once you do get hot, you have to embrace it. And then there was a game when I was in law school. I must have spent, I guess, every quarter I put at, could find on the NBA Jam. And we actually, one of my good friends is Mike Isolino, who played for the Mavericks. And he was part of the game. So he's famous. He's now a coach at Robert Morris. But because he was an NBA Jam, he became famous. But you interviewed the author, Mark Tunnel. I'm not the author, the creator of the game, Mark Tunnel. And in part of the game is the hot hand, where if you make one shot, you get another shot. And in just the whole story of Mark and the game and the whole concept of the hot hand was was symbolized in that game nba jam yeah so mark Turmel is like one of the great video game designers of his generation and when he was a kid he loved three things he loved basketball and he loved games and he loved fire he was actually a bit of a pyromaniac <laughs> and when he grew up he would grow up uh, to, to combine these three childhood loves into the biggest hit of his career and that game was called NBA Jam. And so, you know, when I grew up, I played NBA Jam. I'm, I'm a, uh, basically the same age as Steph Curry, and he played NBA Jam. Everybody played NBA Jam. What I did not realize until writing this book was that NBA Jam was one of the most lucrative, successful arcade games ever. It made a billion dollars in quarters in its first year of existence. Not a million, a billion <laughs> with a B. And, and the question is why, right? Like, why were we so obsessed with this game? Because NBA Jam, if you remember, was a really weird game. It, it, was, it was modeled after, like, a, a sci-fi game set in a post-apocalyptic society. You could, like, jump over the basket to throw down dunks. You could push people. You could you know, put up threes from half court. It was, it was super bizarre. Um, what I think is that, you know, the, the great superpower of this game was what happened when you made a few shots in a row, you were heating up and then you were on fire. And I think that, uh, what Mark Turmel did was he single-handedly brainwashed a generation of impressionable young minds <laughs> into believing the concept of the hot hand that like once three shots went in, you were going to make a fourth. And like, that resonates to this day. Like, I think that if you were to ask anyone who played NBA Jam, do you believe in the hot hand? They would say yes, and probably they would say yes because they played NBA Jam. But then you translated your book. I mean, I was expecting Curry, more basketball, but then there's this great, we're talking to Ben Cohn, author of The Hot Hand, just a tremendous, exciting book, and it is a 
perfect book. I mean, it's very, it makes you think. I mean, I, I put down the book after almost every like 10 pages and just thought about what you're writing because I mean, in your own <laughs> mind, you're thinking, wait, do I think there's a hot hand or do I not think there's a hot hand? But you then you go to like people like Rob Reiner, directors, Rebecca Clark, who's a, a composer, and then you talk even to shit about Shakespeare and saying, well, other artists in their life have get these hot hands, but you have to be able to take advantage of the hot hand. Whereas if, if Steph Curry was hot, but he wasn't allowed to take threes, then he doesn't really have the hot hand. You have to be able to situation. And if you could just tell a little about the Shakespeare story, because you talk about where he, he was writing during the time of plagues and the pandemic, which we're having right now. And I just yeah. think it was so timely. And I mean, of course, you wrote this book way before uh, uh, you, know, you knew about the coronavirus. But the point is, the story about Shakespeare was just fascinating. Yeah, it's one of the few times where I wish I were not timely, right? I was not expecting to, to write this book into the heart of a pandemic. But, um, you know, when Shakespeare scholars have looked back at his career and they've tried to understand how he wrote for a very long time, they thought that he just, you know, was a, a regular, you know, metronomic writer. Uh, it turns out that was not remotely true. He ran hot and cold. He wrote in streaks. And one of the great hot streaks of his career was when he wrote King Lear, Macbeth, and Anthony and Cleopatra in a very, very short amount of time. Some people believe as little as two months. And the question is, what changed? Was it Shakespeare or was it the world around Shakespeare? And the answer is a little bit of both, but it turns out he wrote these plays in a plague year. The plague was actually kind of his secret weapon. And, you know, the, the plague was this constant force in Shakespeare's life. It was one of his biographers says it was the single most powerful force that shaped his life. He probably should have died from it when he was an infant. He baked it into Romeo and Juliet, which, you know, most people don't realize the plague is what turns like the most famous love story ever into this tragedy. And then he takes advantage of it again in 1605 and 1606 when he rips off this just glorious run of writing. And it's, it's a really nice reminder that if the hot hand is this collision of talent and circumstance and luck, sometimes circumstance presents itself when you least expect it. And sometimes circumstance is the plague. And I think that's worth keeping in mind now. Like, we're not all going to write King Lear while we're stuck in quarantine and lockdown. But there is some great art uh, that's going to come out of this very strange period. And um, it's because of unexpected events. And, you know, all we can try to do is adapt and try to take advantage of them. And then you always, you, you, you bring it interesting. You compared asylum judges and baseball umpires, which you're like, wow, in the world do you get this connection? But the point was that a baseball umpire, like you said, Bill Miller, who has the widest strike zone, if he calls a strike on two, two times, so he calls two strikes, the third one, even though it's probably a strike, is more likely going to call a ball because he doesn't expect it to be three strikes. And you said the same thing with an asylum judge, that an asylum judge, if he grants asylum to two people, the third one, even if he has the better case than the first two, the, the asylum judge in his mind says, I've just granted two. I got to grant. I got to say no to a third one. So explain that connection between the asylum judges and the baseball umpires. Yeah, it's amazing. Economists have actually studied this. And there's this one incredible paper that came out a few years ago that looked at asylum judges and baseball umpires. And they wanted to understand how they make decisions under a condition known as the gambler's fallacy. And so the easiest way to understand the gambler's fallacy is actually through basketball. So you walk into an NBA arena and you see Steph Curry make three shots in a row. Everybody thinks he's making a fourth shot. That's the hot hand. But if you walk into a casino and you go to the roulette wheel and you see red three times in a row, what research has actually shown is that most people bet on black the next time. And that's the gambler's fallacy. And the difference there is the one of control and whether or not we bet on a streak to continue or to end. 
And what these economists who studied baseball umpires and asylum judges found is that both of them make decisions uh, and they behave according to the gambler's fallacy. So they try to end the streak. They bet against the streak. It's actually the opposite of the hot hand. And there are huge stakes. So if you're a baseball player, like, you know, getting punched out in a third strike is sort of a trivial example, right? But if you are a refugee and you're applying for asylum, this idea that, like, you could be granted or denied asylum based on what this judge has done for the past two or three cases, regardless of the merits of your case, I mean, that's not trivial. That's really crushing. And to me, like, the, the power of, the, of that example in particular is to show that there are real human consequences for how we make decisions and how the hot hand works. This is not just some eggheads and some geeks thinking about this basketball phenomenon in their psych labs. I mean, this is this is the real world. And um, I, I, I just think there's a force to the hot hand and to this corollary of the hot hand, the gambler's fallacy, that's really worth thinking about in our daily lives. Well, you talk about in daily life and anyone who plays in iTunes or Spotify and you said that they had a problem is that sometimes if in their Spotify, if it comes up, say, Billy Joel, three songs in a row, they're saying, oh, my gosh, there's a problem with my Spotify because it had three. But they don't understand that sometimes randomness is in a row. And it's it's hard for people to, to wrap their mind around the fact that and you actually you're talking about what they had Spotify and, and iTunes had to do to get that randomness actually out of the place. Yeah, Spotify and Apple, these two, like, you know, monolithic companies that, you know, just have billions of dollars to spend. It turned out they both had the same problem, which is that um, people, when they when they shuffled their playlists and they, they randomly generated music, they were convinced that their music was not actually random. And that's because randomness is really hard for us to wrap our minds around. And sometimes randomness means hearing the same artist twice in a row or even the same song twice in a row. And yet that's not what we want randomness to be. And so what both Spotify and Apple did was they tweaked their algorithms. They changed the code and they dispersed songs by the same artist over the course of a playlist to make sure that you would never have the burden of hearing two Billy Joel songs in a row because <laughs> we, never, we never want that. So essentially what they had to do is this really ironic um, uh, twist, which is they had to make their algorithms less random to feel more random. And to me, that was such a delicious example of how um, the hot hand and how we see patterns and randomness where they don't exist. And sometimes we even invent causes to explain them. It shows why we believe in the hot hand, why we were so convinced of this phenomenon, even when some of the brightest people on the planet told us there was no such thing as the hot hand. So then getting back to basketball, I mean, I can't believe that people like these experts at Stanford, like these top psych, um, this was like important for them, like the social um, psychologist, uh, Tversky, whatever. And they went and they studied, they go to Philadelphia 76ers and they went and studied their games because the Harvey Pollock, I went to Penn when Pollock was there. So I know that he kept yeah. a zillion stats and everything yeah. like that. So they went and they analyzed all of Harvey's stats and then they looked at the players and they did this whole conclusion. And what did they, what did, what did they conclude? they essentially found that you were no more likely to make your next shot after you've made a few shots in a row, right? And that was sort of evidence against the hot hand for 35 years. It turns out um, in, in this very convoluted um, way because of this very subtle mathematical quirk, it was actually evidence for the hot hand. But for, for three decades, it seemed that the, the best available evidence, the best data that was available to, to us at the time suggested that the hot hand was basically a figment of our imagination. When you made two or three shots in a row, you were no more likely to make your next shot. And that was the great breakthrough of this paper. It, 
it sort of defied something that we all thought to be true because we had all felt the hot hand and seen the hot hand for ourselves. It was this lovely cognitive bias, this, this really easily digestible, um, accessible uh, example of seeing patterns and randomness and our minds playing tricks on us. And then I don't know if I want to give away the end of the book or if you don't want to, if you want to say read the book, but I did want to go and talk about the Caltech researchers who go in and they were able to use now, 30 years later, we have stats and you can see like where everybody is on the court at every time, what kind of shots they hit. And with all these tech, this technology has advanced to this super duper level. But they went and looked at a Spanish basketball team and, and could really give them just keep shooting the balls and just sort of like re-examined whether there's a hot hand or not. Exactly. There, the, the data that we have now is so much better than what it was in 1985. It's even better than what it was in 2012. And that new data and new ways of thinking about that data has led us to, to change our minds about the hot hand. And it suggests that our intuition actually may have been right on this one. And maybe there is such a thing as the hot hand. So at the end of the book, you, you will have sort of been presented with both sides of this case. And you can kind of be like a jury. You can you can take the evidence and you can see what sticks and you can sort of toy around with this idea for yourself and see where you land. And I think that's the really fun thing about thinking about the hot hand. There are really smart people on both sides of this debate. And sometimes you just have to think about it for yourself and, and try to apply it to your own life and, and figure out what you think. I mean, that's sort of the beauty of this world of ideas. And then I loved how in the book, though, you used Craig Hodges because they finally went and looked at all yeah. the three-point shooting contests. And Craig Hodges once won a fantasy basketball league for me, so I'm really a partial to him. Oh, so you're but partial, sure. it was it was like, but by looking at Craig Hodges, like at first they said you can't have the hot hand, and then did. But it was like that just watching Craig Hodges, who was one of the best three-point shooters of all time, shoot, and then in, in the three-point shooting contest, that gave them the ideas that well, maybe when he's hot, that's part of his game. Like he, he does have the hot hand because because we're uh, the reversion to the norm, or however you want to explain that yeah craig hodges plays a crucial role in the history of the hot hand which is that these two young american economists in europe josh miller and adam sonherho when they were looking at the hot hand they were looking at three-point contests in search of evidence for the hot hand they watched craig hodges and they basically said like there's no way that craig hodges is not hot here and yet when they looked at the data that's exactly what it said so it made them rethink uh, the math behind the hot hand and and it led to this new conclusion but i have to say my favorite thing about the hot hand and, and craig hodges which i did not realize until writing this book was that he won the three-point contest in 1991 1992 and 1993 and then in 1994 you might remember he was not in the nba anymore and yet he was invited <laughs> to the three-point contest that year at all-star weekend because the thought of having a three-point contest without him was so unimaginable i mean can you imagine that happening today it's like it's like bringing uh like you know uh like Dwayne Wade back to the dunk contest now or something. It would, it would be crazy, and yet it was like totally fine when it happened. We're talking to Ben Cohn, author of The Hot Hand. Um, it's a book, I think it's coming out this week, so you can order on Amazon, uh, Kindle, everything. It's phenomenal. I mean, everybody's at home for another month, and you're looking for an interesting book to read. This is a great book to read. It's going to make you think, and if you don't even like basketball, this book is interesting. You have stories we haven't covered about Raul Wallenberg and everyone else, and of course we talked about the Shakespeare story, but there's so many different stories in here. And I want to ask you about baseball, though, because the stats on baseball are amazing in terms of they can actually look 
look at how people are throwing and how they're doing. And, and I just was wondering, could someone have a hot hand because they're in the groove and they actually feel like they actually feel like they're throwing correctly? Their mechanics are perfect. And that's what then gets them in the hot hand. And then when they like sit down, like maybe like one inning, they're perfect because their mechanics, they know exactly how to throw the ball and release the ball. And now with these stats, they're able, with the pictures and the angles, they're able to show what you're at a millimeter off and throwing in the second inning than you were in the first. So suddenly you don't have the hot hand, but you're just, your mechanics are a little off. Yeah, I mean, the interesting thing to me about baseball is that there's essentially um, a defense, right? Like, if you are a pitcher and you think you're hot, well, like, what happens if you go against a batter who's really hot? Like, <laughs> you, can, you can let one pitch slip and it's the wrong, you know, it, it, it's a fastball down the middle when you want it to be on the outside corner, and suddenly you're no longer hot. I mean, I think it's mostly been applied to hitters who feel like they're in the zone. I mean, I used to play baseball, and I could feel that for myself. There were some days when the ball looked like a beach ball. And also the, there were some days when it looked like a golf ball and those days were terrible. But um, that's sort of the interesting thing about baseball and basketball is that there are people who are designed to stop your momentum In basketball. They can call a timeout or they double team you or they change the defense, right? In life, you know, life doesn't work like sports. Like if you're a movie director, if you're a writer, if you are a songwriter um, and you feel like you are hot, there's no one who is trying to stop your hotness, right? They're actually trying to make you even hotter. If you're a movie director, they send screenplays your way and, and actors want to work with you and producers want to throw money at you. And um, I think that's when we get back to that idea of circumstances and how we could take advantage of circumstances to get hot. I mean, baseball, there's a team that is trying to stop you. They're trying to beat you. There are not teams that are trying to beat you in real life always, right? I mean, sometimes there are, but 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 in many times there are not. And um, I think, you know, it's it's probably a good thing that not all of us grew up to be professional baseball and basketball players because we can take advantage when we feel hot. Amazing. Just, I mean, the book made me think. It's called The Hot Hand from Ben Cohn, The Mystery of Science and Streaks. I, I know you're really busy, Ben. Uh, and uh, so thank you. I appreciate you for coming on Iron Sports. Great stuff all around, Ira. So uh, what, are we doing the, what are we doing this week? What's the plan as we try to uh, keep, our, keep our boredom levels down? Well, no, I, again, you got the UFC to fight to watch this weekend, which will be exciting. See what everything happens. And, and I think we, next week I have a, um, we're going to have a Joan Ryan. She wrote a book called Intangibles, Unlocking the Science and Soul of Teen Chemistry. This book is great. Like, I love this book, and she's going to be on next week to talk about it. She's from the San Francisco Examiner. Uh, she had wrote a book that was considered one of the top books in the history of uh, one of the top 100 sports books ever. Uh, and this book itself is neat about what about team chemistry. We can talk. She interviewed Barry Bonds for four hours. Okay. Wow. I mean, the longest interview that Barry Bonds has ever given in his entire life. And it's about in thinking that he's the team cancer and actually came away with a mm-hmm. different thing when you read the books. I cannot wait to have her on the show. It's going to be great stuff. We are out of time, though, on behalf of Ira. I'm Mike. Let's talk next Monday night. It's Iron Sports.